Welcome to the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy's 17th Anniversary Podcast Series. To celebrate our anniversary, we are speaking with some of the school's experts on the overall theme of tackling the grand challenge in individual and social well-being. My name is Susaina Kadir. I'm currently the Vice Dean Academic Affairs and Associate Professor at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, and I'll be your host today. Joining me is Dr. Matthew Matthews. Dr. Matthews is Head of IPS Social Lab, a Centre for Social Indicator Research, and a Principal Research Fellow at the Institute of Policy Studies. Today, we will be discussing diversity and inclusion in light of the rising awareness of the disadvantages and difficulties faced by minorities. I've known uh, Matthew for a very long time and I'm really glad to be moderating this session because he is really the expert on these issues. The work that he does at IPS includes research using both quantitative and qualitative methods on race, religion, immigrant integration, family, aging and poverty. Matthew also studies the impact of social programs on various issues and has been involved in a number of evaluation on the usefulness of various government initiatives. He has taught courses on social policy and published in a range of academic and media outlets. He currently serves on the board of One People SG and the National Volunteer and Philanthropy Centre. He is a research advisor to the Ministry of Social and Family Development and is part of the VWO Charities Capability Fund Panel and Families for Life Council. Can I now hand it over to Dr. Matthews to take us through a short presentation on the issues? Thank you, Professor Susaina. You are also very much an expert in this area, so I'm, I'm hoping to hear some of your thoughts in today's session. Really glad that you'll be I'm able to be a part of the school's 17th anniversary and, and provide some perspectives uh, from the field of diversity and inclusion. There's a lot more talk about diversity and inclusion today. We could have seen a ramp up of that interest, even in Singapore in the last few years, with the reserve presidential election uh, a few years ago. There was quite a bit of interest, and I think there was more conversation about this at both the official state level and, of course, and the, the people level. And of course, you know, last year, there's been increased discussion about this global discussion since the protests globally triggered by the unfortunate death of George Floyd. And I think that a lot of people have been talking about these issues in the last you know, year or so. I've had a lot more inquiries from companies, MNCs, businesses to weigh in on some of these issues. So aside from the social justice course, which I think is important, and uh, especially for younger demographics, very, very passionate about that. There's also the potential positive impact in the bottom line, uh, which should steer people to sit up when we think about inclusion issues. So many know the McKenzie Report, which shows that the data strongly uh, shows a correlation between ethnic diversity, in, especially in executive teams. They looked at 1,000 companies across 15 countries. And you do see that there is some kind of gain. And these companies which have greater diversity then tend to outperform. Uh, in Singapore, they noticed that about 71% of employers recognize that there is an impact when you have diversity policies on the company's culture. So this is something that's recognized, certainly recognized internationally in terms of how it benefits creativity, ultimately it benefits the bottom line, it allows companies to serve the bigger mission of the needs of, of larger communities. And, and in, even in Singapore, I think there is an, a recognition of it. But what I think I want to steer people to think about and highlight is that we need to be reasoned in implementing inclusion initiatives. 
because there are consequences and real ones if we don't do it properly. There's at least some opinion uh, that's coming out more recently that diversity initiatives are often implemented without people actually investigating whether they're effective. And people sometimes are blind to the fact that sometimes there are unintended consequences. In fact, I think there's quite a bit of discussion coming up in the US that quite a bit of diversity, quality and inclusion policies, the implementation comes with quite a bit of pressure because companies feel that you just just have to because if you don't do it, you'll be cancelled. At one hand, there is this need to quickly appease a population, especially those who might be very upset about the lack of inclusion and, and some, you know, buy into this idea of inclusion at all costs approach. So really, you've got 25% of minorities in the population. So let's just make sure that every organization, like you or not, if you've got more than 50 people, you just have to have that ratio that there will be that 25% of that, that 50, which will be racial minorities. Diversity policies like that and you know affirmative action particularly can have an impact. Sometimes it can render the ethnic minority as an inferior. It can signal that underrepresented groups are really less competent and they need a leg up, they need help to succeed. And, and sometimes when they finally get into a company, as glamorous as the company might be, they end up in a very subordinate position. And that's been the reality in quite a few places. Uh, there's also kind of an effect on the individual. The minority person's own perception of his racial ethnic identity when he is hired under some of these diversity initiatives. So one, you know, in the, the very identity management the individual goes through, there's quite a bit of pressure. For instance, the person may have only weakly identified with his or her ethnic heritage. But because they come into that company because they are, they are under this diversity initiative, then you suddenly feel that you have to play up your ethnicity. When the reality is, many of our ethnicities, identities are actually very, very fluid and situational. Sometimes you feel very akin to how the majority might, might view many issues and we may... I mean, for many reasons, disagree with, you know, how it might be seen in the, from a more ethnic lens. And of course, when that happens, you feel the sense of anxiety because you can't really represent uh, a community you're supposed to represent and sometimes you'll feel inauthentic. There is an inadvertent signaling effect of diversity initiatives. Companies sometimes put it out and they, they go with the easy way of just having quotas, for instance, because it seems to be very fair but underlining it, what happens is that underrepresented groups will find it much harder to prove, for instance, instances of discrimination. Because, you know, the, the company can sit back and say, hey, no, we've been provided, we've taken care of the quotas, racial representation has been met, so what's the issue? But then uh, in the actual organization, the lived experience of the minority may be very far from being properly I mean, accepted and there could be all kinds of inequalities and it could be invisible, it could be marginalized, could be completely not. In addition, there's also an impact that you have to the majority community, which is you know part of that society. That it could be that sense that they feel that they have been disadvantaged. Uh, and people then start looking at, you know, who has the most disadvantages? I mean, I'm Chinese. I come from a poorer family, so I, I should be more deserving, for instance, than a, a minority person who actually has it good all his life. So, I mean, everybody's trying to run to the fact that I can show where I've been disadvantaged even greater. So we, we need to remember that the effort for trying to have some kind of universal inclusion is really a pipe dream, especially as you consider the fact that there are many groups that would feel that they need to be included. And sometimes what works for one group 
may not work for another. And I, I have this, I mean, concept from the field of disability studies. So if you build a toilet, try to make it inclusive. So people have tried to make it larger for the wheelchair users' convenience. But for someone who is visually impaired, that it can be quite disorienting because much larger space may be hard to figure where the fixtures are. So not all attempts to make inclusion will work for every single group. Then there's an issue of which groups should be included. Uh, it seems to be easier to include some groups and not other groups. So, I mean, over the years in Singapore, there's been a lot more strong push for gender inclusion, which is very, very important. That's been big. But then, you know, there are many other areas of inclusion uh, where there's issues to do with age, which I think there's been a lot more interest about. There's been some tackling about issues to do with nationality. Certainly areas like race has been something that has been tackled at some level, but I think there's been quite a few gaps and people have talked about that. Issues to do with disability. People are calling increasingly for understanding about need for inclusion of based on sexual orientation. Some are asking for political ideology. The list goes on. And then if you add on the, the idea about all kinds of other disadvantages, especially when you look at it from a more intersectional level. So, I mean, the individual can be a minority, can be female, can be a person with disability, functions of sexuality. I mean, all that together, I mean, compounds the kinds of disadvantages and furthers the need for inclusion. So it can be quite complicated from a very practical aspect of it. I think businesses should really continue to hire based on the business case. I'll try to preface that, right? The government has used, uh, especially when it comes to issues to do with persons with disabilities, seniors. So the government tries to push if you hire people of a particular category, then you know, the, the state bears some of the costs. And that makes it more possible for you to increase particular groups of people within the organization. Then I think it's important for us to mainstream and push harder for people, I mean, senior managers, leaders in many corporations. Perhaps there shouldn't be rules that if you have, you know, a company of a certain size, then, you know, your, some of your senior staff, especially those who look at HR matters, they should have some kind of training and diversity. They, they should be familiar with why diversity can be very beneficial to the organization. And they can consider how they can accommodate that. So maybe once they confront themselves with the broader considerations, maybe deal with some of their biases, have a good sense of how to navigate uh, in a space uh, where diversity is necessary, then they might become more open to hiring minorities. And you know, you might finally see a flourishing even in their own businesses because they've been able to accept diversity. We have to accept the fact that sometimes uh, businesses, if they're going to be successful and competitive, and I think especially if I think about the Singapore space, there would be some reasons that you might have to have cultural competencies as part of the requirement. And sometimes this might be seen as discriminatory. So for instance, I mean, there might be a need if you're going to take up, uh, and you know, Singapore being a hub and needing to post people in different places in the region, if you need to send someone in a senior sales role in China, for instance, I mean, and the person is not able to be a fluent Mandarin speaker, it, it might be a, a major challenge. It's a practical challenge that you could get across a minority who doesn't speak Mandarin to be a representative in China and have a translator always go with them. But it really does impede in terms of the progress and the success of the company. But it does, I think, remind us of the fact that we do need to have some reasonableness as we think about this matter. But then at the same time, when we notice that there are trends within society, I mean, there were quite a few discussions about how tuition agencies sometimes tell minority tutors that, sorry, families just don't want, they want a Chinese person to teach English something. I mean, I understand if it's language issue, but, but 
if it's uh, school students who are exposed to English as the main language, then why shouldn't a minority person be considered as well? Now, of course, uh, people have preferences in terms of their hiring. We, we do our surveys at the Institute. We ask people in terms of hiring preferences. It's very clear that race is a consideration, especially when there are more intimate roles associated or, or closer roles, caregiving roles, for instance. It's understandable. But I think that there should then be attempt to either through legislation, other means to be able to make, for instance, companies or agencies try to at that stage when someone uh, raises some of those issues, I don't want someone because of their race, for the, the agency to do due diligence, to be able to explain, to share, to explain how this can actually be beneficial, the child is not going to lose out. And there could be various ways so that we can reduce the gaps which we currently see. I think there's a stronger case for some employers uh, to ensure that there's greater representation. But one, I think, when it comes to public services and those who take public roles, it is because the constituency of the civil service, the public service, should somehow approximate the society at large, the society it's serving. So it's it's important to be able to have greater representation there. And I, when I say representation, it is at all levels, including more senior levels. So if you go at the Singapore SGDI and you look at you know, all the name lists of people in different policy units, and you, do, you do see that uh, we generally may have a shortfall when it comes to minority representation in quite a few policy and implementation kind of divisions in the civil service. I'm not saying that there's been no attempt to try to work towards that. I do know that for the, the last few years, you've got uh, more PSE winners or, or scholars who are ethnic minorities, Western scholars, ethnic minorities. So certainly there's been a shift towards this. I think that is a very, very important shift. But I think that there needs to be an acceptance that within the public service, there should be greater representation because the public service does make policy for all of Singapore. And you do need to have sufficient number of people with different ethnic backgrounds to be able to help that. I, I do know that it's possible for I mean, people to get you know, advisors to come in to provide that additional help. But there's nothing like the actual implementers or policy designers having that cultural competence and influence and their, their personal self being involved in it. I do think it does help. Let me just give a few moments to just talk about accommodation. How does uh, diversity look like when people do come into organizations? At one hand, I think there's this call for people to be colorblind when it comes to organizations. So when you are actually an organization, then everybody should just be the same. There's also the other school just calling for greater appreciation about the fact that people need to be multicultural. People should be made aware about people's ethnic differences. And I think this comes front and center, especially more recently in Singapore, when we think about uh, Muslim nurses to wear the tudong, for instance. I think one argument has been for a long time that Let's make sure that the space is, I mean, does not have any kind of identifier about one's ethnic or religious background. And, and I, I, know, I do know that there are sensitivities to this in law enforcement and other areas. And this might be very important. But the whole discussion has, I mean, reminded us that there needs to be some acceptance that maybe the colorblind approach where we say everybody should just uh, completely de-emphasize any kind of difference is just not realistic. To begin with, that's not how individuals perform. You know, research has been showing us that we notice people's difference in milliseconds. Our brains are programmed like that. We can tell when there are physical differences. And the fact is that it's just very normal and very human to categorize people based on the environment. 
So the reality is that we do notice differences. Uh, so it is just impossible to to have this notion that we just forget about the differences which exist there, just be completely colorblind because we cannot be colorblind. It's just not doesn't seem to be biological for us to do that. And I think for people who are of a diverse ethnic background or who might be minorities, for instance, that aspect of their unique cultural identity, their traditions are a very important aspect of, of them. And, and so perhaps the, the notion should be that that should be recognized in some places and in some instances in Singapore, I guess, when it comes to issues with race. And, and some points, we also celebrate those differences. We, we need to be able to find increasingly the ability to be able to look at these differences, to recognize these, and recognize them as positive differences. I think some of the argument has been that it, once you have differences at the table, then people tend to stereotype people into different boxes, and that's not good. But the reality is that if we can do it, so we have positive constructs, these different uh, identities, and then I think it's a lot easier. Identities which don't evoke prejudice, then it's very possible to accept that there are differences within the organization and celebrate those differences, live with those and, and see them in very positive terms. So I do think that this would be something that, that there's obviously going to be work in progress. Glad for the move towards implementing, accepting the Tudong nursing field. I think that does give greater recognition that our approach will ultimately be very much more of a multicultural approach. Thank you, uh, Matthew. That was really fascinating. But if you'll indulge me, uh, Matthew, I, I wanted to go to a specific issue that you raise, and, and I really like your pointing out about the public sector. For those of us that study ethnicity and race, the focus is always on what, what is it that the public sector represents, right? And, and so you mentioned hiring, you also mentioned at the organizational level, how we approach celebrating differences and how we accept it. And they are actually uh, quite linked. And I just wanted maybe to push you to address just one point. For many of these questions that we have had on the public sector, I'm just curious whether, uh, in your view, right, one of the struggles that we have has have been about the inconsistencies in the approach. So on the one hand, we try to promote the idea of being uh, race blind or ethnicity blind because the realm of the public sector is supposed to be completely neutral. So when we are dealing with the question of inclusion and celebrating differences, we struggle with that because ultimately that's the overall perspective. But the reality is that's one particular perspective because in many parts of the world, differences are celebrated within the public sector in very real ways. You've got more extreme ways where you've got quotas, for example, and affirmative action, which place people from different ethnicities uh, in various positions. And that's worked into legislation or more informal ways where people are brought in and there is clearly a recognized positioning of different for example, ethnic groups. You'll see this in some cultures where there are linguistic groups that are very firmly established within the society and they need to be represented, whether formally or informally. So I'm just wondering whether you would talk a little bit about one of the problems perhaps that we have here is our previous approach of trying to insist on neutrality, ethnic blindness within the public sector. No, I think maybe think about how the public service has serve people of all backgrounds fairly. And that, that's actually a very important characteristic of our Singapore public service. I mean, I, one part of our service that we've been doing consistently, we've been asking people in terms of differential experiences. And this is the public, right? How the public has felt. And we have asked people in terms of differential experiences 
dealing with the public services, whether it's the cost of the school, healthcare. Then, of course, we also ask about other kinds of employment work in general. And we noticed that very few Singaporeans, including minorities, so I'd say less than 10% of minorities, say that they generally feel treated worse by the public services. So any, whether it's hospital, police, court systems. And I think that's fascinating because uh, you don't see that in many other societies. Uh, in many societies, if you ask a question about police, you would find a substantial number of minorities who feel that the police pick out on minorities or the court system is not fair and imposes harsh sentencing on minorities. So in Singapore, I think the formula that has existed has helped us to ensure that there is enough sensitivity that when the population has been dealt with, very few people feel that because of another or of a minority race, they're treated worse. So I think at that level, I think we need to celebrate that part uh, where we have achieved. Now, I think the other issue really has got to do with the fact that uh, whether we allow in the public services the willingness for people to stand up and speak out for different communities. Now, I think it's, you know, you, you obviously have uh, within society uh, different groups with champion for different considerations. Singapore has been a little bit more careful when it comes to the championing of issues of race and there's been a lot more sensitivity about that and there are good reasons for that. But yet at the same time, there's one thing about when you're part of a policy group and a team trying to think about policies or areas that you have enough sensitivity to know that uh, there are different needs of different communities. I do, I do feel that at an earlier stage, minority leaders who would be in that position, because there are just so few of them, maybe one in a whole division, mm. they are very unlikely to speak up about perhaps what they do know about the needs of minority communities any kind of area policy, for instance. And they would just generally just kind of be quiet. Now, today, I, I notice, because when I do some of the training in different places, where there are few minorities who might be part of a program, there would be a little bit willingness to stand up and speak up about some of the considerations. It's a little different from what it was before. So I do notice that you do need to have a little bit of numbers for that, and that, that space for minorities to be able to represent, not feel that if they stand up and they speak for the considerations of particular groups, then, you know, people will just tighten them as all these are antagonists or, or agitators or just pushing for a communal kind of consideration. I think we should uh, recognize the fact that all of us come with, we, we come into any kind of thinking process with a particular set of lenses, experience, cultural background. We should be allowed to bring that into our thinking process, but yet have the understanding that when we finally think about it, we're not just thinking about the needs of one community, we're finally thinking about all communities in Singapore and their well-being. So that broader framing, which I think we've all learned very well, the importance of the nation and how we stand for that, but yet that willingness and the ability of our minority leaders to be able to, to also think from that minority's perspective and bring that out and, and that being seen as very legitimate. Absolutely. Okay, let me just go to the questions which have been raised to us. So let me begin with this one. It's a question from Narayanan. In light of digitalization and globalization, what are the new avatars of diversity and resulting changes to inclusivity? I think this is really a key part in terms of the definition of what we mean by inclusion and how that has evolved, right? Because uh, we are, in fact, sort of operating with quite a, a different terrain these days. It's very important for us to note that inclusion has, it's a lot broader today. Our, we are a lot more aware about the fact that there are different groups of people who need to be included. 
And I think if we think about digitalization globally, we clearly would think about people who have been left out uh, in terms of digital access. And you hear this in Singapore that uh, older people, not all, but there's a proportion who uh, have a lot of difficulty with new technology uptake. And so workplaces can be not very inclusive to them. And, you know, there's there's a lot of digital transformation that that's happening at work. And during COVID, notice a lot of that transformation has been, I mean, it's accelerated in terms of space and many more jobs, I mean, experience that. And of course, you do notice that, that for some who have been very savvy with the internet, this has been easy. But for others, especially those, I mean, again, it's older, but not necessarily always older, but maybe sometimes people who don't have access to high quality broadband services or good uh, computing software, or, I mean, good cameras, you know, different ways that you just will not be able to to write and do as well when it comes to work from home arrangements, for instance. Digitalization and globalization, of course, have allowed us to deal with issues to do with inclusivity in different ways as well. So I think there's another aspect of maybe this question, right? I mean, we think about globalization, for instance, just think about issues to do with Black Lives Matter and how the whole vocabulary, the whole discourse, the narrative has reached Singapore and who feel uh, energized now to to deal with the questions of race and differences that come because of race. So the whole notion of vocabulary has changed. I mean, we have added notions like privilege in the conversation. There are various schools of thought in terms of privilege. I personally don't buy into the notion about Chinese privilege, but there are notions about majority privilege, which I subscribe to. But it's been, there has been no more discussions, more vocabulary, more ideas that come with that. So with greater digitalization, uh, uh, globalization, the use of internet. I mean, that. I mean, you, you are able to connect people to notions of diversity and inclusion, which are international. So I think this has an effect on how people self-perceive, self-identify. Let me just shift the questions now to be a little bit more specific around policy. We've got a few questions of, of that nature in what's been submitted. So Nara raised a question around quota-based inclusive practices and systems and the potential downside which may entrench deep-rootedness, divisiveness. How can policies be developed, specifically focused on inclusion, that, that can be more, you know, he writes it as uh, nurtured to become more sustainable. How can we do that? Now, it's related to a question by Glady. So Glady talks about essentially trying to move beyond tokenism, right? So he write, uh, writes, how can we ensure that the focus on diversity also goes beyond tokenism to social categories and includes goals to bring about substantive social changes. So both of these questions are related to specific policies that are meant to be sustainable in terms of bringing about greater inclusion in a society. So Matthew, how, how would you address this? Thanks, Susanna. We want policies which would, I think if you use the word Baranius, be sustainable, which would be something that we say in the longer term, that they actually work for the good of society. We have to be careful, for instance, the, as I think Blady mentioned, if the focus on diversity is all about tokenism uh, to different social categories, tokenism itself, it's, it's really this, this notion that we want to satisfy a particular kind of moral requirement uh, to include people who have been structurally disadvantaged. And to some way or another, give them an idea that social mobility is still available when, you know, in many places, you, it, it seems to be kind of stopped. For substantial 
change to happen, one, I think we need to continue to stress the importance of diversity education and sensitivity training. I think in all fields, people do have to begin to feel that this is important. They need to be able to examine themselves, look at their biases, and be able to look at that. They also have to be able to hear the voices of people who are minorities of different kinds and be able to appreciate where people come from. Uh, so I think that's a big aspect of how we probably would need to deal with it if we're going to be more sustainable. So that needs to be that challenging of people's biases and prejudices and stereotypes. Then there also needs to be this push to greater inter-ethnic interaction. I think this, this is important because you do need to, to make uh, diversity uh, part of one's everyday life. And the more we do that, this becomes more sustainable to be able to bring about the change, be able to have people say, well, you know what, I, I mean, I have minorities within my, uh, my close group and so I do care about their needs and I do want to make sure that I stand up in case there are people who are particularly racist within my communities. So I think that that bigger part. Now, I going back to some of the, the questions that Nara was, was mentioning in just kind of looking at that particular question, uh, this this deep-rooted divisiveness that come from some kind of quota-based inclusive practice. I think about some policies in Singapore, for instance, I think about the EIP, the ethnic integration policy. This is something that the government initiated uh, a few decades ago. And it's a very broad-based inclusive practice to ensure that Singaporeans live with people of other ethnicities and multiracialism becomes just part of their neighbourhood. Uh, because you do have a certain number of people of who are minorities living in your HDB flat and your precinct, your estate, and therefore, if by default, you would need to have, for instance, I mean, within your food courts or your coffee shops, some minority shop or places in the market, you've got minority goods sold. You normally would have a place of worship within the community, which might represent a minority religion, for instance. So that has been a, an attempt Will that entrench deep-rooted divisiveness? My, my sense is that though it, it reinforces the fact that people are different now, more recently you've got more discussion of the fact that because you've got ethnic quotas, it reinforces the fact that we are different, we are CMIO, and you know, we're not all the same. And that I think is not comfortable for some. But yet, you also see the fact that there are benefits with that. SM Dhamma a few years ago when asked, I think it was the Gallant Symposium or, or some major international symposium where he talked about some of the greatest policies in Singapore. And he he helped to the EIP as one of the uh, greatest ones because it did allow a very large proportion of Singaporeans to, to live in a multicultural setting. You are forced to a, a embrace the diversity, especially in our public uh, housing system. I mean, you just live with that. You do see the fact that there are uh, major benefits from, from some of these policies. There are definitely, of course, the downside of it, and people have talked about that, and, and how sometimes some minorities are at the short end of the stick, and they, they don't do as well because of pricing and how it's sold. And, and some of the, the finer points of the policy which do affect some people. I, I hope over time that there will be a greater resolution for some of these difficulties from particular groups, and I think that needs to be worked on. But I do believe that sometimes some of these broader inclusive practices do have the way of fostering inclusivity. And if you look at it, I mean, you can either see it as being deep-rooted divisiveness, but I think we need to, to look at it squarely. There are a lot of upsides to it, which I think we need to be aware about. 
Thanks, Matthew. As always, it's great to discuss these things with you. Obviously, this is a pet topic for yourself and for me and the debates and the complexities around it continue to rage on. So thank you very much to everyone. Thank you for joining us. Please do subscribe to hear more of our 17th anniversary podcast series. Next episode will feature Mr. Christopher Gee, Senior Research Fellow and Head Governance and Economy, Institute of Policy Studies, Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, and he'll be delving into the future of work, welfare, and the social compact in aging societies. Thank you, everyone.